Hello and welcome to today's webinar on international perspectives on genetic testing in ALS. I'm your host for today, Paul Wicks, and I'm very pleased to be joined by an esteemed panel. We're very grateful to our host, Sano Genetics. I'm an advisor to, to Sano Genetics, and, and they've got some amazing tools that really help to accelerate research and support companies that are trying to do precision recruitment for the increasingly high-tech and more targeted trials that we're seeing. So this type of work is, is really key to accelerating the types of uh, new treatments and cures that, that patients uh, are really desperate for. So we're very grateful to them for today. So we're just going to start off with just a quick overview of what, what we're going to do today and just to be clear what we're not going to cover. So I go to lots of ALS talks and webinars where you see pictures of motor neurons and go back to Charcot and, and whatever. We're not going to cover that today. We're also not going to go through some of the basics of things to do with ALS genetics, uh, testing and counselling, some of the ethical considerations for that. The good news is that the International Alliance of ALS and MND Associations has done a brilliant series of webinars that this team has been uh, involved in to some extent, and you should go and check those out. They're available on the ALS MND Alliance uh, website, some of them also on YouTube. We, uh, for a variety of reasons, we're not going to be talking about specific ALS trials or specific ALS treatments on today's call. And we're also not going to be talking about some of the emotional and, and sort of sociological aspects of living with familial ALS. If you are affected by ALS and uh, you have concerns or, or you want to talk to other people that have been in that same situation, the nonprofit group I Am ALS runs a support group that's really great, meets every Friday, does a ton of work and research and advocacy. So, you know, there are things out there uh, to, to support uh, and to connect you with other people who are, who are going through the same thing. So we're probably not going to be touching on many of those issues today so that we can focus on, uh, on the main topic. So just to back up a second, when we talk about genetic ALS, it's important that everybody has in mind the same perspective on just how rare the genetic forms of a rare disease can be. So if you had a big football stadium like Wembley Stadium with a capacity of something like 100,000 people, in terms of prevalence of people living with a condition like ALS, if you had took all the people that were there, only about five of them in this whole stadium might have ALS. And as we know, that might present different places, might present in the bulbar region, might cause issues with walking, with breathing. Eventually, all regions uh, can be affected. But only one in five of those individuals would have a, a genetic form. Now, I pre-apologize for some slips I might make, but you might see familial ALS, genetic ALS, sort of used interchangeably in the literature. I think what I'm hoping to mean here is uh, someone for whom, if, if we knew everything, if we had a magic crystal ball, we would probably uh, be able to find that about one in five cases have a genetic link. Now, this one individual here may or may not know that their family member had it in the past. They might not have a complete family history. You know, people may have died of other things. When you start going back in people's genealogy, it's very challenging to uh, to get a hold of all that. But when we do research studies, you know, this is the number we're starting to look at. So it could be as high as one in five with, with that form. And the reason that's important, you know, why talk about a rare subset of a very rare group of people? Well, in aggregate, you know, a very large number of people on an annual basis uh, are dying of, of ALS, uh, something like, to take the stadium analogy again, the capacity of Fenway Park, about 34,000 people a year of, of dying of ALS. And so if 20% of them have a genetic form of the disease, then actually it's potentially a weak point in the disease itself, because 
for the the vast majority of people with a sporadic form, we don't really know what's causing the disease. There are lots of theories and there are models, but if we're honest and we look at this, the success rate of, of trials and therapies that we've had historically, I wouldn't say we're at the same level of somewhere like you know the, the oncology space or some of the gene therapy rare disease spaces. We've been able to see really transformational treatments come to play very quickly. So this group could be a, a real vulnerability. And, and one of the ways I think about it is, you know, the weak point on a somewhat impenetrable fortress like uh, like the Death Star here from Star Wars. Um, but if we are able to target this, we're going to need certain things to be true. And if we are going to face ALS as one species or united, we need to understand the genetic basis of the disease for all of humanity. And if you take a look at where humanity is concentrated, and against that, you contrast that with, well, where am I fairly confident you could get genetic testing for ALS? Then unfortunately, you know, where these arrows show up, and again, somewhat subjective, tend to be in those countries that researchers refer to as weird, so Western, educated, industrialized, rich, democratic com- countries. To state the obvious, that's not necessarily where all of humanity is gathered. So we, if, if we're going to face ALS as one united species, and we're going to face it as one disease, we can't just have a very small proportion of the population with access to genetic testing. Otherwise, we're not going to be able to run trials with sufficient number of people. Or if someone's looking at whether or not they should develop therapies in this area versus another condition, they might say, well, it's too spread out. It's uh, you know too, too heterogeneous. Another issue is that even in centers and places where we can, through specialist centers, get genetic testing, there's a lot of variability here. So even making them all green arrows is, is perhaps not all that accurate because we, we have some inconsistency. We have some places where we don't agree. And that's going to be the focus of today's discussion. So there are a couple of references down here if you want to go into the the details a little bit. But when you speak to experts, and obviously when you get 50 experts in a room, you get more than 50 opinions. We don't all agree on how to define genetic ALS or familial ALS. You know, if your third cousin twice removed had FTD, does that count? Sometimes. If they had a gene test or didn't have a gene test, you know, does that mean you can have a gene test? It varies. Which tests we check is highly variable. So this is a graph on the right. Again, the details don't matter. It's a bit of a heat map across different countries of which of the sort of known ALS genes are are being tested for. If we were all consistent as a practice, as a field, this whole tapestry would be red. And so it's more just as the, the overall gestalt that we know genes like SOD1 that we've known about since the early 1990s. Yes, most people being tested for those C9 or 72 that probably account for, you know, again, the, the highest proportion of people with a known gene uh, are probably being tested most places. But again, it's not consistent. And, and that's a, a real challenge. There's more technical considerations about how exactly we're gathering what type of samples and how we're doing it. And this point about counselling, like I said, the, the ALS Alliance series was really good at, at going into details on that. So, you know, until we get some agreement on this, it, it's going to be challenging to, to make progress and really attack this weak point that I think we will see. And um, it's certainly not not just uh, the, the, the four of us who have noticed this. If you look out in the literature, you see editorials, you see commentaries that have been pointing to these inconsistencies for a little while now. And I think, you know, where we've seen the most solid sort of call to arms is probably in the ALS-MND Alliance, actually adding genetic testing to the fundamental rights of people living living with ALS. And so this has gone from perhaps somewhat of a smaller uh, niche space to, you know, with increased interest in in gene therapies, really, uh, really coming to the fore. And just to say, again, in terms of those variations, if you think of the countries where our speakers today uh, are speaking from, the types of variations we're seeing, you know, somewhere like the United States, very research intensive, resource rich, uh, a lot of people can't get access to genetic testing without having to pay. Or, you know, there may be sponsored programs in place 
but but not everybody will be eligible. Another issue I think we'll, we'll tackle here is, well, what if you don't have a family history of ALS? And, and in research, we are finding that something like 2% of people without a, a previous family history may have a, a sort of known ALS-associated gene. They're not routinely offered testing, right? And we see this variance across these different countries. And then for those people who you might imagine would, would almost all be getting genetic testing, someone who, you know, someone's presenting and they've got suspected ALS symptoms or a diagnosis, and someone like a parent or an aunt or an uncle, grandparents, you know, do they have a family history? Again, it's not consistent that they're all getting that testing. Another important area that I think is getting more attention recently is, is gene carriers. So for people who are, say, children of someone diagnosed with ALS, who may themselves be at something like a 50% risk of inheriting the gene, you know, they may want that knowledge for various reasons. And it may well be that instead of just looking at treatments for people diagnosed with ALS in the future, we presumably want to prevent ALS happening. And so if we have gene therapies, we have you know, research we want to pursue, we can only really do that if we sort of understand who is at risk and, and of what so that we can kind of um, you know, be, be talking to future generations of, of people that we've prevented from becoming patients, not just people living with the condition now. Right. So that was a whistle-stop over, overview of, of kind of where the situation is. And I want to turn now to, uh, to Professor Amar Al-Chalabi for some reflections on that and just to say, you know, how did we get here and, and, and where are we going? So thank you very much for that, uh, Paul. It was a very comprehensive overview. I just wanted to clarify the numbers for familial ALS testing in the UK. The 20 to 80% is when people don't necessarily know they have a family history. So uh, because remember, for our system, people come to the primary care physician, then go to a secondary care physician, and then we'll go to an ALS centre. If they're at an ALS centre, it'll be much closer to 100%. But along the earlier parts of that pathway, it will be about 20 to 80% because they won't necessarily pick up the family history. I think one of the key problems is how do we know when to offer genetic testing? Because Really, everybody should be offered genetic testing, but there's a number of barriers to achieving that. And probably the biggest one is the time it takes, uh, the resource required, not to actually take the blood and do the genetic testing. And that was a huge barrier before, but now it costs a few hundred euros to do an entire genome. So that's not the problem. The resource required is actually in the counselling and the time taken to administer that counselling, because you need to spend at least 30 to 60 minutes just explaining the implications of genetic testing before you can take the blood. And then you'll need some similar length of time to go through the findings afterwards. And they're, they're not always very clear. So I think the counselling aspect is the main issue, because if someone's travelled a long way to see us in a specialist centre, and in the US, people can travel three or four hours or more. In the UK, very commonly, it's normal to travel one to three hours. I think it's the same in many other countries. They then receive a devastating diagnosis, or they may already know the diagnosis, but have spent a long time discussing clinical trials and things like that, and then seeing the multidisciplinary team. It's not necessarily somebody that somebody would want to spend another one hour or two hours discussing genetic testing. You know, it's a lot of burden. So you then have to make a special trip or offer it remotely, and not everywhere has the resource to do that. Yeah. No, and um, it, it felt like, and as I was putting together some of the materials for this, it did feel like a little bit of a lottery as to where you live. You know, like you say, location is a part of this, but what services are available? And I suppose things like digital technology and us getting used to telemedicine during COVID means that I suppose we, as consumers of health, we're not really, um, we're, we're not as concerned with geography. You know, if I could find a specialist over Skype, why, why wouldn't I, you know, but in the world that many of us live in, especially in the publicly funded health systems, it really is based on your geography, isn't it? To a large extent, yes, we are able to offer remote 
attendances. We do that if people prefer it. Actually, in the age group of people who are at risk of ALS, many people aren't necessarily comfortable with digital technology, or even if they are, they may not be so good when there's a technical problem, and then you're left with making a phone call to do something that actually really needs to be done face-to-face. So it's not yeah. always straightforward. Yeah. And, and Christiana, you've, you've been doing some, some work in Canada looking at this, this very question of variability, and, and, and that was some of your data that we presented there. So can you tell us a little bit about the experience of, I guess, trying to upgrade and, and level set for an entire country, how that's been and and where do you see it going? Yeah, sure. So for the last two and a half years uh, prior to my current role, I was working on an entire Canadian strategy on improving access to genetic testing for people living with ALS. And I I think, you know, there's there's jokes all the time about how we get free healthcare in Canada and it's all beautiful and wonderful with our universal healthcare system, but how that plays out in reality of how people actually access care is very different. So although our healthcare system is federally funded, so healthcare comes from the federal government, it is then doled out in a provincial manner. So we have 10 provinces and three territories, and it's up to each of those provinces and territories to decide how healthcare funding is allocated, how resources are utilized. And so what you end up with is 10, in the provinces at least, 10 different mechanisms for accessing genetic testing and counseling. And so I think this kind of echoes to how we approach this problem globally in that there's not going to be one size fits all solution to this. And so it's been very much adapting to what the local provincial infrastructure is, what the gaps are, what we can work with. Having clinicians who are excited and enthusiastic about this really helps. And so getting that conversation going. And so I I appreciate that we're continuing to move this conversation forward in webinars such as today, because the more we talk about it, the more we can start to move that needle. But yeah, the experience has been widely variable and there are still provinces where access is abysmal, um, despite clinicians wanting to order it for their patients. So, mm-hmm. and, and has that been a change that you've seen as well about clinicians wanting to order it? So, I mean, I've been in the field for 20 years and, and I'm sort of a psychologist. I'm not in the main medical field and thank goodness I've never had any clinical responsibilities. But I remember many people saying, well, what's the point of doing it if it's not going to change my management? And now we are starting to hear some potential. So have you seen a change? You know, you seem to do two and a half, three years. Have you seen a change in attitudes? I definitely have. So I think I, I tend to look at my business courses when I when I think about this, and there are early adopters. So there are some clinicians who have been very forward thinking about uh, genetic testing for years. And most of the time, those are the clinicians that have very easy access to it. So I think of our clinic at the Neuro, where we've been doing genetic testing on everyone since since 2015. But we had a strong support from our geneticists and genetic counselor and able to, to access that. Then you have the group of clinicians where it's required a little bit more evidence. And we have more and more of that being put out in the literature in terms of papers calling for improved access and and guidelines, et cetera. But what we're also seeing is the increase in clinical trials that are geared towards genetically targeted therapies. And, And What is most exciting is it's not just patients who have a a clear family history these days. If we look at something like a taxin 2, where they're also including sporadic patients into that trial, that is expanding the scope of why we should be offering genetic testing to an expanded pool of patients. And we recently published some data on that where where we took a a pool of patients in our clinic and and we started implementing a taxin 2 patients and all uh, uh, taxin 2 testing, all of the patients that we identified had no 
no prior family history of ALS. So that was proof in principle that it was right to implement this at that time. And, and the more trials we have and the more treatments that we have that are coming along, I think that will fuel that fire more and more. But we have to continue to push the conversation in that way. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and Patrick, I know you've just come back from a big genetics conference. I was interested, you know, is this just an ALS problem? Are we, are we sort of lagging behind because we're a relatively small area or is this something you see in other places too? Yeah, great questions. Uh, definitely not just an ALS problem, I think. So breast cancer, even being uh, 20 years on to significant scale, genetic testing still is the same issue. I, I think there's probably two drivers behind the discussion that we're having. One is a technological one that MR mentioned earlier, which is um, largely solved, not quite, but we can do whole genome sequencing. Pretty soon we'll be able to do long read sequencing at a pretty significant scale. So that means the graph you showed about all the genes becomes an analysis and a genetic counseling and a, and a people problem. But technologically, we ought to be able to do everything on that list at scale. But I think there's a second one, which is a little bit more challenging, which is the who benefits or, or what is the benefit from doing testing? Because depending on the group you speak to, if it's clinicians, then we want to test what's going to deliver clinical benefit first and foremost. If it's uh, someone running a clinical trial, they're interested in their gene or set of genes whether or not there's necessarily clinical benefit because it hasn't been proven yet, right? That's the point of the trial. If you ask the people in research, they say, test everything, test everyone, because we want to discover the new genes. And I think a lot of the challenge happens when these groups aren't talking to one another because, and I think it's being cracked by some of the interesting healthcare and research alliances. So if we look at groups like Genomics England and the NHS Genome UK strategy as a whole, uh, I think it's a really interesting application of whole genome sequencing at scale where the data is being used in research as well as in clinical care. So I'm I'm optimistic, but I think we need to see more of those kind of joined up programs where the data that's being generated is using first and foremost to make clinical decisions where relevant, but also the data is being piped into to research uses. Because then when you spend that, it's $200 maybe to sequence a genome, but it's 10 times that to do all the counseling and analytics and and support around it. So if you're going to spend that $2,000 all in, let's make sure we get as much benefit out of it as possible. Yeah. One of the things I was noticing is, is in some of the literature, there are sort of research findings about what types of genes you see in what populations. You know, if, if someone comes from a European background or an Asian background or something like that, seeing slightly different mix of genes. But I suppose in this increasingly globalized world, just because that's the country they live in, you know, you can't assume that's necessarily where they're from. And it seemed like some of the panels we were seeing there were trying to target towards the country they were in. But I don't know either MR or Christiana, how much tailoring do you, do you really see? So if somebody, you know, happens to be in Canada, but, you know, their ethnic ancestry is from, from somewhere else, is, is there a different approach taken? Or is the reimbursement only going to cover what, say, that province expected to find? Yeah, so I we haven't seen any difference in, in coverage based on ethnicity or race in Canada. We have different access, depending on what province, to different gene panels. So there are some provinces where they have access to a full panel, and if that's appropriate and the clinician is comfortable ordering that, then, then that can be ordered. That's not a problem. Some provinces only have access to a limited panel right now of like SOD1 and C9, and that's where we need to work to kind of fix those gaps if clinicians want to be ordering more than that. 
But to your point, I think we, we do need to be mindful that the incidence of certain mutations in ALS will vary globally. And so we need to think about how we make sure that there is broad access to broad panels in, in a global way to, to be able to address that. I don't know if Amar has any other further thoughts on that. Yeah, it's very similar in the UK. So we, we wouldn't change the panel that's available based on ethnicity. I don't think enough is known about genetics and genomics of ALS internationally to really make proper informed decisions about that. Because as you said, most of this, well, I'm not even sure if you explicitly said this, but most of the research has been done in European derived populations. So we don't really know very much about East Asian populations or Sub-Saharan African populations or others. So we do need definitely much more information about those. In the UK, if you order a genetics test and you fulfill the criteria for ALS, you'll order what's called R58, which is a whole genome sequence. But because that takes some time to come back, they initially will screen the C9RF72 gene, which is found in 10% of our population. So that's quite high. And that does vary by uh, ge geography. And they'll also order SOD1 because there are gene therapies in trial or in extended access available. So that those two are done very quickly. And then if those are negative, we get the rest of the panel done. You could argue we should do the rest of the panel anyway, because about 1% of people will have more than one variant, more, more than one gene affected. But those other panels, the whole genome sequence, when it's done, we only get the information back for the ALS panel. And that's about 40 genes. And we've just recently shown that, in fact, if you test those according to the UK current guidelines, which is that you have to be either have a family history of ALS, or if you don't have a family history of ALS, you have to be younger than 50. It used to be younger than 40 until about a couple of months ago. If you do that, you miss something like uh, 90 to 95% of people who would have an actionable genetic result. Because about 20% of the general ALS population, regardless of family history, will have an actionable genetic result. By actionable, I mean something that will definitely need proper counselling and discussion because it has implications for the family and will need some kind of approach, either a therapy if it's SOD1-based or trials if it's some of the other major genes or some other approach like uh, family planning considerations. So it is very important that we do offer genetic testing to everybody, but for the reasons that Patrick and Christiana have discussed already, it's very difficult to do that actually in everybody. In the UK, it also varies by geography. So although officially those are the rules, you have to be less than 50 if you don't have a family history, if you speak nicely to the genetic centre in some centres, some areas, you will be able to get genetic testing on all of your patients regardless. And in other centres, that will be impossible. So it even varies within a small geographical region like the UK. Yeah. And actually, I have to say that, you know, one of one of my concerns more broadly about this area is, is, is you know, frankly, those people who are more, uh, you know, have more social capital, who are more willing to push against the first couple of no's they get, are more likely to probably end up with, with testing. And so, you know, by default, that's going to cause drive inequality. You know, if, if perhaps if you don't speak English as your first language, or you're not comfortable discussing medical genetics in your second language, you know, what hope do you really have of pushing through policies like this. And so I think that, that we have a risk of just, you know, this being another place where we, where we sort of deepen inequality. So, you know, I really do feel like it is a, a, a priority area, but I suppose what, what I'm trying to look for is other disease areas where we saw a step change. I mean, I, I suppose in places like cystic fibrosis, where a particular therapy came along and was for a particular group, it was pretty, you know, you would have to check, wouldn't you, to, to see who was eligible. But is that what we need? Do we need some sort of watershed moment like this? Or, or do you see the direction of travel coming more into harmonization just as a secular trend, do you think? So this is something I've thought about a lot because when I started working on this project in Canada a couple of years ago, 
it was it was a little bit more forward thinking than some people were ready for. But I kept bringing up SMA as the example, and it really it took. A therapy approved for SMA to really drive forward newborn screening. And if we look at newborn screening like rates or availability, we're, I think, three therapies approved now for SMA at this point, and, and it's still not widespread. So in the US, they've come a long way. They they have most states will will have newborn screening available at this stage. But in Canada, I think we're, there's a, a program that's being spearheaded by the Muscular Dystrophy Association of Canada that has really pushed this forward and several provinces now offer it, but half the country still doesn't have access to newborn screening. And there's a um, an initiative in Europe as well, but, but many countries are without newborn screening still. And so if we think of Spinraza, which was approved in 2016, and then Zolgensma um, a couple of years afterwards, and then there's a, a third therapy whose name I'm, is escaping me, it, we're still not at a state where newborn screening is widespread and there are therapies on the market and available for people. So we, we have to push this before something is available while things are still in clinical trial so that access is there when and those people are identified, those people living with ALS who could benefit from these therapies are identified by the time that's available. Yeah. And and it, to be clear, it's great that these products come along and it's great that they do cause those changes. But I guess, you know, what about all the diseases we're not talking about where we could have found some other new technologies, but if we're not even doing relatively consistent testing in diseases where we've known about family histories for decades, what chance is there for disease X, Y, and Z where we could be bringing these, these approaches to bear? And I suppose that moves more towards either uh, you know newborn screening. I know the NHS has talked about possibly screening 100,000 individuals or government level citizen uh, genetic projects, you know, so that our future health initiative in the UK will, will be doing gene testing for 5 million people. And, and hopefully that'd be a great resource. But yeah, can I just, Paul, can I just um, speak to that? So there's the, the problem you have with unbiased population level screening for something like ALS genes is that you will get huge numbers of false positives and therefore people given unnecessary anxiety in the first round of screening. I can tell people the statistical reasons behind that uh, outside this. But basically, if you have a relatively rare condition, and then your test must be much, much more accurate than the rarity of that condition. And for ALS, that isn't true. For genetics, it's not true. And therefore, you'll end up with something like 20, 30, 50, even for some variants, 80% false positives. You know, So if you actually have a genetic test that's positive, you're very actually unlikely to have ALS subsequently. That may sound counterintuitive, but it happens with rare conditions unless the test is really 100% reliable in genetics is not at that stage. Even a clerical error when it's done at scale, even if it's very rare, is enough to disrupt that. So I think we have to look at population-based unbiased screening carefully in a condition like ALS. For some, for, for people where there's a predetermined reason they should be tested, for example, if there's a family history, that's a completely different situation and there, then the accuracy is very high. But if you're just talking about generally screening the population with no reason, that's a, a very different matter. I was going to say from, uh, I spent about five years working on a very long tail of ultra rare disorders as part of the deciphering developmental disorders project, which is a, a big exome at the time, exome sequencing, although I think they're going back to add uh, additional omics data to it, but uh, about 10,000 families in the UK where the child has a developmental disorder of unknown origin, but but presumed to be genetic. And, and one of the biggest 
I think surprises out of that study was the long tail of ultra rare diseases that are uncovered through, you know, large scale and not, not unbiased to MR's point that the child was presenting with a severe and significant developmental disorder. And we saw great progress in that field over the space of about a decade from low double digits to single digit diagnostic rates to now most of the labs are getting in the 40 to 50% diagnostic yield for knowing the cause. And this is due to the discovery of hundreds of literally hundreds of novel disease genes in this space. And it has led to new therapies in some cases, but it's a very long road. But I think we have to start with the diagnostic platform. And then once you've got that up and running, that really lays the foundation for trial recruitment, new therapies. Um, but until you've really got a solid diagnostic platform, it's it's really hard to, to do everything else because because parents, families are, are in the dark as to actually what the, what the cause is underlying their condition. So far, what I'm getting from this is I should teach my kids that they want to be genetic counselors when they grow up because it's going to be a growth area. Great. Um, I want to handle some, some questions um, coming in on, on the chat and, and on the Q&A. So I guess this is a question for anyone who wants to put their hands up, but um, someone's asked, could you speak to the companies who are doing genetic testing and ownership of data? And I think this is particularly referring to the US. So I mentioned earlier, some people would have to pay quite a high out-of-pocket cost because of insurance. And that's obviously financially very disturbing. I've heard numbers like six to $8,000 out-of-pocket. Mm-hmm. There are some testing pro- programs available that are sponsored by companies looking to sort of, you know, enroll people in trials. But I guess the question is, you know, what, what are some of the, the pros and cons of, of, of those approaches? And I, I guess, you know, the US is not a socialist utopia like the UK and Canada. How, how do we make sure that people's data is being put to, put to the best uses and, and, you know, we're not inflicting financial harm on people, but also not risking their data going to places they're not happy with it? Yeah. So there's, there's a lot of really good discussion about sponsored testing programs and, and they do have their pros and their cons and how data is handled and what companies can do with that data is, is definitely one of the, the hot topics. Um, I, I see a lot of benefit in sponsored testing programs from the sense of being able, being able to provide access to genetic testing in the short term, but always with the mindset that we need to work on the underlying issues of providing access through means outside of a sponsored testing program to be there to, to catch the system when that program leaves. And so we did have a sponsored testing program provided by Invite in Canada, which was missing C9. So it was not a great fit. But then that was pulled away with like a week's notice from us. We were very fortunate that Ionis and Prevention Genetics are now offering a sponsored testing program in Canada, and I believe the US as well, where we we can now fill that gap again. And, And clinicians are very much of the mindset that We'll use this temporarily, but we want to work towards a, a more long-term solution. But but with those programs, yes, the data is owned by the company and, and those that are sponsoring the program and how that data is used is, is definitely concerns. I'm, I'm not fully aware of data privacy rules and regulations in the US, so I, I can't really speak to that fully. But there there are some other options that could be available for people living with ALS in, in the US. Most genetic testing companies will have a private pay option for when an individual um, does not have insurance coverage or it it is not covered through other means. And that is at a lower cost than what it would be charged to for insurance companies 
or through healthcare systems. So I know people living with ALS in Canada who have gone through this and the it is an out-of-pocket cost, but the, pri- the private pay option is less than what like a hospital where I worked would pay for the test as well. So companies do recognize that. So that could be something else to look into. Not for sure if I, I fully addressed that question or not, or anyone else wants to pick up from well, there. And there's another question in, in the comments about, you know, whether or not the U.S. healthcare covers uh, the cost of ALS genetic testing. I mean, I, I think the answer is it varies dramatically, right? So people could be under different health systems if they've served in the military and fit the right mm-hmm. criteria. They could be under the VA, obviously having employer-based insurance, there's, there's Medicare. So there's all different sorts of situations. And I mean, this is part of the problem that we're, that we're talking about, right? That it is inconsistent. You know, I think there is, uh, I think there's a flowchart somewhere on one of the FTD portals. And of course, with C9072 having overlaps between ALS and FTD, some of the FTD community are our potential allies in this too, that, you know, they kind of have a flowchart of, well, you know, you could try this, you could try this, there's sponsor testing, there's research platforms, whatever. But but as you say, Christiana, they vary in, in which genes are, are covered exactly. So it's tricky to navigate, unfortunately. There was another question here about, yeah, about access to therapy. So um, I guess this this comes down to timing, right? So so let's say somebody is, has got a new onset of, of, of ALS symptoms. They're in that diagnostic process and there's a delay because it's difficult to get, like you said, Amar, the genetic counseling, the genetic testing. If therapies come online or if trials come online, presumably we only have a window, right? We, time is neuron. And, and, and I don't know if, if there's a risk that if we don't, get some of these railway lines greased a little bit better, people might miss useful therapeutic windows. Is that sort of in the minds of of clinicians and researchers at the moment? Absolutely. I think that's the key issue. We have to be able to get these answers very quickly. That's why, as I said, for us, they screen C9 and SOD1 separately from the rest of the panel so we get an answer quickly. But that that then just pushes the block back to how quickly can we do the genetic counselling and without the resource that is delayed sometimes by months. So the, I, for me, the biggest way we could, the, the easiest way we can grease these wheels or get the lines uncrossed or whatever the, the um, analogy you were using was, would be to have some system where we can guarantee very prompt access to genetic counselling, which could be delivered remotely. It doesn't have to be at the visit. And that might be an easier way to do it because then you could have, for each country, just a small group of counsellors could you know, you could refer to them, they can arrange an appointment with the, the person affected and their family at their convenience and then deliver the counselling. And then you can just be informed, yes, that person's had counselling, the, the test can now be sent off. It, there are lots of simple, relatively simple solutions, relatively low cost solutions, but they do require something done centrally. And so all we can really do is try and influence the people in charge of the health systems in each country, because uh, I think it's going to be difficult to do this internationally. The only other way to do it would be to come together as a, as a group and lobby for it internationally. But actually, we could then, if we were going to do that, get other diseases on board because we'd be a much louder voice because there are probably other conditions in which early treatment matters. We know that's actually true for SMA and that's why they've got the newborn screening. It's probably true for other conditions too. And, and lots of what I've read and heard about, about the counselling, genetic counselling protocols are, say, based on Huntington's, which you know clearly life-changing impact for, for families, but equally relatively small numbers of people. And so taking more conservative approach and putting lots of checks in there like psychiatric counselling and you know multiple sessions, I, I guess can, can be resourced probably again, not ideal. But I guess the reality is if if we start um, doing this 
across multiple conditions, it, it wouldn't matter if you could double the number of counsellors overnight or triple. This becomes a scale problem. And obviously, we don't want people to have a poor experience. We don't want people to be suddenly shocked by information. But but it sounds like we really have to rethink this if, if, if we're going to have any chance of succeeding. Yeah. I mean, the UK, for example, used to have genetic counsellors specifically for ALS. So in the past, if we saw somebody with familial ALS, we could deliver the counselling ourselves if we were trained, or we could refer them to the genetic counsel counsellor service and they would deliver it. Now, all neurologists are expected to deliver the genetic counselling. That's actually true across all of medical specialities. So they've moved the burden of genetic counselling from the genetic counsellors who only do very complex counselling now to the general practitioner, the general, not really practitioner, but general physician within their speciality. And not everybody is comfortable with doing that. Not everybody is trained to do that very easily. And it's actually quite difficult to navigate how do you fill in the correct forms and you know it's not like ordering a, a full blood count or a normal blood test that we would do where you just tick a box mm. it's actually a much more complex process so yeah. all of those things are barriers and i suppose you know uh, a lot of a lot of people have quite a rapidly progressive form so if someone's coming to you and their biggest issue is mobility or their biggest issue is conversation about you know gastrostomy or ventilation i, I guess one has to prioritize that time right so um yes. like say, maybe usually- it's the in-between time yeah, and as you know, there's usually at least a di- uh, there's on average a year's diagnostic delay, mm-hmm. so they're already one year into the disease. So we do need some system to pick people up earlier. Yeah, um, a question here about so I mentioned earlier the overlap between ALS and FTD, particularly for C9 or some too. Do you think there are any issues around consent that we need to be aware of? So you know, as we go looking back through people's family histories, or we start looking at carriers. You know, are there safeguards we need in place to to ensure that you know, first of all, everyone's being treated with, with respect. Uh, you know, many of the cognitive impairments that we've seen are very mild issues with executive function. They certainly don't necessarily impact on people's ability to to make really important decisions. But yeah, can you just comment a little bit about you know what impact does the fact that this is not just ALS potentially it's FTD as well have yeah, on so- how we approach these topics? I mean, I think as as clinicians, we always assess whether the person we're speaking to has capacity to make the decision that we're giving them. And if someone clearly has a frank dementia and wouldn't have capacity, sometimes even somebody with quite overt dementia will still have capacity to make the decision. But if they clearly don't, then we have to work around that in some way. Otherwise, we, of course, part of the counselling process is to make sure somebody has fully informed consent. That's really what the counselling is about. It's about getting fully informed consent. And the consent, the information is about what do you do if you get a positive test? What will you do? Will you tell your family? If you're not going to tell family members, should you be having the test done? So those, and, and what are the implications of telling family members? There's lots of other things to consider than just having a blood test. It's not that simple. So all of those things are about consent. And, and even the interpretation of a negative test, what does that really mean? And actually, the big block now that's, that's becoming a real problem for us is what are called the variants of uncertain significance, the VUS, the US. Those are variants which may not have been described before, but they're in an ALS gene, for example, are they relevant to that person's ALS or is it just a coincidence that it's there? And there's no easy way to predict if a variant is relevant. If it's been seen in many people and goes down a family and you can see, yes, that's clearly an ALS variant, that's easy. But if it doesn't, that makes it a much more difficult problem. So there are ways to try and address that. And one of them is the ClinGen panels, which are internationally convened panels that have a system of rules where we all convene. We we meet every two weeks or so. Uh, There's gene curation expert panels, GSEPT. Those look at 
deciding the evidence that a particular gene is relevant in, in, for example, ALS or not. And then there are variant curation expert panels where within a particular gene, you decide which are the variants for, for which there is proper evidence they're relevant to that disease, which are the variants that are definitely benign, and then which ones are the variants of uncertain significance, where do we get that extra evidence from? Because you need that to be able to give the counselling with the result to the person who's had the test. Mm-hmm. And then presumably, you know, where we've banked samples uh, and new information arises, it means we can go back to people and say, hey, the landscape has changed. We have new information for you. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah, but, but what's tricky about that, and I, th- I think MR is a really important example here about the complexity of counseling. And there are a number of groups talking about newborn screening and the complexity of pretest counseling and that kind of approach blows up to an even more significant level. How do you, in an hour or in half an hour, explain all of the different potential outcomes positive and negative. I've been in this field for more than a decade and I learned of a new interesting, rare, but potential outcome where if if the child comes up with a rare BRCA2 homozygous, so they need a bone marrow transplant, that also means both parents are BRCA2 positive. So both parents have now learned they're at high risk of breast cancer. So from a newborn screen, you can end up with the whole family receiving news they weren't expecting. So I think it's a big challenge for us as a field of how do we, on the one hand, we have this known limiting reactant of good genetic counselors or neurologist time or or skilled doctor time to do this. But on the other hand, we have an increasing complexity of potential outcomes. So how do we square those two um, while still getting testing to everybody who needs it? Yeah, I think that's a a great point and and really speaks to the importance of genetic counseling when you're offering genetic testing. And I think one of the things that we do have going for us in this capacity is that the field of genetic counseling, um, we're very early adopters for telemedicine. And so pulling some of those resources into remote visits, for example, and, and, and putting more complex cases with a genetic counselor. MR mentioned that not all clinicians are willing to, to provide the genetic counseling themselves. Some are. And so, you know, can we balance resources in those cases where neurologists can provide, let's say, say pre-test counseling and a genetic counselor can pick up the post-test counseling? So it's really looking at what kind of alternative service delivery models are available to help fill some of these gaps. And then to your point, Patrick, really for those complex cases and, and the evolving complexity involving the specialists who can help address those cases will be key. No, that's great. Well, so, you know, I feel like we've just scratched the surface really, and uh, we could certainly uh, delve deeper on this, but, um, you know, we're going to, we're going to finish up there incredibly inspired by all the progress that, that I suspect this group is going to make in the years to come. And, and, and clearly it seems like, you know, we're not the only one with this challenge, so we can benefit from the progress made from other technologies other conditions and, and my hope is in you know five or ten years time if we redraw those maps you know we'll we'll be a united front against ALS so thank you so much to to Patrick to Christiana to Amma for their time for their thought for all the work they've done throughout their careers and thank you all for joining us today. Thank you.